A reading from the book of Jeremiah. Thus says the Lord God of hosts, the God of Israel, to all the exiles whom I have sent into exile from Jerusalem to, from Jerusalem to Babylon. Build houses and live in them. Plant gardens and eat what they produce. Take wives and have sons and daughters and give your daughters in marriage and take wives for your sons that they may bear sons and daughters. Multiply there and do not decrease. But seek the welfare of the city where I have sent you into exile and pray to the Lord on its behalf. For in its welfare, you will find your welfare. For thus says the Lord of hosts, the God of Israel, do not let the prophets and the diviners who are among you deceive you, and do not listen to the dreams that they dream, for it is a lie that they are prophesying to you in my name. I did not send them, says the Lord. For thus says the Lord, only when Babylon's 70 years are completed will I visit you, and I will fulfill to you my promise and bring you back to this place. For surely I know the plans I have for you, says the Lord, plans for your welfare and not for harm, to give you a future with hope. Then when you call upon me and come and pray to me, I will hear you. When you search for me, you will find me. If you seek me with all your heart, I will let you find me, says the Lord. And I will restore your fortunes and gather you from all the nations and all the places where I have driven you, says the Lord. And I will bring you back to the place from which I sent you into exile. This is the word of the Lord. I can't imagine a better anthem than the one the vintage Colgate 13 sang about sheltered in the arms of God. For that's been our prayer this week. Uh, for those in harm's way because of the storm, I understand that there are several of the group that could not get here because of the storm. So we miss them. The second thing is, if I didn't know better, I would swear they all got together and decided what tie to wear this morning. <laughs> Plus, like me, I don't think any of them are math majors because I counted there are 21, not 13. So I understand, I understand. Several years ago, I had a meeting at the museum. And after that, I was to fly to Newark and then on to Heathrow. I got out of my meeting early and it, were, it was, those were the days when if you got there early and there was a seat on an earlier flight, you could catch it. So I thought, well, this is, this is great. So it's not a long flight to Newark from here, but after a while, I felt those left turns ever so often, and I thought, oh my, we're circling. So after about a half an hour, the, the pilot comes on the intercom and said, folks, got some bad news. The president's on the ground in Newark, and we can't land until so-and-so and so-and-so, and I don't have enough fuel to keep circling, so we're going to Philadelphia and get some fuel. 
Well, after we got to Philadelphia, it took a good 30 minutes to get a, uh, get a gate because they won't put fuel in your plane if you're not at a gate. There's some safety rule that I'm glad is in place. While we're getting fueled up, the, the, the pilot came back on the intercom and said, folks, I've got some bad news for you. The president's on his way to Philadelphia. <laughs> and we can't take off until so-and-so-and-so-and-so. And I thought, surely this was a bad joke. It was bad, but it wasn't a joke because sure enough, I looked out the window a few minutes later and there was that uh, blue and white United States of America plane landing in Philadelphia. So finally, we were getting in line for takeoff and the, the pilot said, well, folks, we're in line for takeoff. We're, in, we're 27th in line. And by this time, I'm sweating both figuratively and literally. I'm sitting in a middle seat between two good-sized fellows. Figuratively, because I'm worried about making my flight out of Newark, and literally because it's hot and stuffy in the plane, and one of my seatmates turns to me and says, looks like we're not going anywhere for a while. That's Jeremiah's word to those in exile. You aren't going anywhere for a while. He sends this letter to the exiles in Babylonia. He tells them you're not going anywhere for a while, so you need to figure out how to live where you find yourself. These are slaves. They're oppressed. They're far from home. They're depressed. They're either close to or have fallen into despair because the future looks no different than the past. And so what Jeremiah has to say is radical stuff here, really. Jeremiah throws a lot of imperative verbs at them, doesn't he? You know what imperative verbs sound like if you make a list. Wash the car, run the sweeper, mow the lawn, buy groceries, do laundry, repair the screen door, do, do this, do this, do that. All imperatives. And so Jeremiah says, build houses, live in them. Plant gardens, eat what you produce, take wives, have sons and daughters, give your daughters in marriage, multiply, don't decrease. Imperatives. In other words, you're not going anywhere for a while. You've got to come to terms with the here and now. And it's no different today, is it? We are exiles. If we are followers of the risen Christ, first and foremost, we are members of the kingdom of God. Before we're Republican, Democrat, Independent, Green, Purple, Orange, whatever the color is, we are aliens because we are members of God's kingdom. We are not home right now. So get used to it. We're not of this world. Some of you remember that old gospel song, This world is not my home. I'm just passing through. Which is true, but in the meantime, as we pass through, we find imperative after imperative here in the text. And quite honestly, Jeremiah offers a, an offensive, an offensive imperative. He tells us to find ways to bless those who have enslaved them. Seek the welfare of the place where you are right now. Pray to the Lord on its behalf, for in their welfare you will find your welfare. What? Pray for my enemies? 
the, my oppressors, those who, who are out to get me, who use me, who dehumanize me. I'm to pray for them. Pray for those who control us. The truth is our well-being. Our welfare does depend on the well-being, the welfare of others, right? We live in a small world, a global economy. We no longer live, live in isolation from the rest of the world, whether we like it or not. We live in a global community, and some of you know that better than some of the rest of us. The welfare of these United States is dependent on the welfare of those throughout the globe. The reality is we are tied together in ways that many of us don't understand. For instance, in his book of several years ago, Thomas Friedman's book, The World is Flat, he writes about the construction of the laptop on which he is writing the book. The supply chain starts and runs along coastal China through Taiwan, Japan, Malaysia, parts of the Philippines, and every night a 747 takes off from the east, loaded with Dell laptops headed for Louisville, Kentucky, the headquarters of UPS. If China and Taiwan are ever getting in war with each other, don't bother, bother ordering a laptop. Because the parts are built all over the East. The truth is our welfare depends on the welfare of others, whether we like it or not. We are 5% of the world's population and we consume 25% of the world's resources. We have a responsibility to do better, for what we do affects the rest of the world. All all of whom God loves and for whom Christ died. Jesus didn't just come into the world for our little corner of it. He did so for our enemies as well. How do we relate to those, to those from whom we feel estranged, racial, political, social groups, whatever? We live in a world where we must relate to people like us. When children are born, they begin to discover their own body. I have a hand. Is this marvelous? And then they begin to discover those around them, most like them, parents and loved ones and friends. But then, if we ever reach maturity, we get to the place where we appreciate and value those not like us. And if we never mature to that point, we stay adolescents our whole lives. text says we are to seek the welfare even of those not like us. We are to seek their well-being, their shalom, their peace. It's a tall order and we may not like it, but it's here in the text. Just like those exiles didn't like their captors. I don't always like the folk that I'm called to work towards their well-being. I won't use names, but I know you will, you will just be stunned to find out that pastors and deacons don't always get along. <clears throat> there was one deacon, I don't know, I don't think he liked me and I didn't like him. It was a him. 
And so I got convicted that I needed to pray for that person every day. Every day I needed to pray for the well-being of that person. About 30 days later during the hymn of discipleship, he came and apologized to me and said he hadn't supported his pastor and encouraged his pastor and prayed for his pastor the way he should. Now, was that the end of our disagreements? No. But it makes a difference if we pray for others, even our enemies. Jeremiah says, this is from the Lord, and those who will tell you other things, pay no attention to them because they're not of God. You're going to be here for a while, They may say you're leaving soon, but you're not. So pay attention here. You know how easily we are fooled by those who claim to speak for God. Trust me, including the one standing before you this morning, there are none of us that won't lead you wrong at some point. So we need to be aware. We need to do our own work. We need to struggle with our faith ourselves. We need to work out our own salvation in fear and trembling. I like to think God's on my side. But the more important question is, am I on God's? Am I a history maker or a history stopper? In the Old Testament, the true history makers were the prophets. Those who presided over the governments were mere mere shells of power. They were, in effect, the history stoppers. The ones who tried to keep hope out of the people's vocabulary. If you keep hope out of people's vocabulary, then they'll be docile and they'll be good slaves. But the the moment they have hope, The moment they believe that things are not always going to be this way, it's a whole different ballgame. You see, these are the ones the history stoppers tried tried to maintain the status quo because it was good for them. And the truth of the matter is, for most of us, if not all of us in this room, the status quo is pretty good for us. Let's not change things too much. I might lose some of my stuff, and life, after all, as our culture tells us, is about acquiring more stuff. So who are the history makers? The history makers are people like Rosa Parks, who one day on a bus in Montgomery, Alabama, her feet were tired, her spirit was tired, and she refused to move to the back of the bus, and it changed the shape of our lives. A seemingly powerless African-American seamstress changed U.S. history in ways while the politicians and the powers that be couldn't get it done. History makers like Lech Walesa, a union man, a spokesperson and activist for human rights for whom there weren't enough tanks in Poland to stifle the dream of freedom. History makers, history makers like Vaclav Havel, writer and dramatist in the Czech Republic, and those students in Prague who marched for freedom and who were beaten severely. No exit, and they were beaten severely, surrounded on all sides. And two or three days later, their parents, their parents found what it took to march there as well, and there came the communist government down. 
History makers know that the future doesn't have to be the same as the past. There are people of hope. There are prisoners of hope, to use Desmond Tutu's language. They know history is the arena where God does God's work. God does God's work alongside the powerless to create newness, alongside the orphan, the widow, the marginalized, those on the edges. That's where God is at work changing our lives and changing history. You know, it's customary for those who run for office, our politicians, to end their speeches with what? God bless America. And I hope God will bless, God has and God does bless America. But not so that I can have more stuff, not so that I can use more of the world's resources. Rather, I pray that God will bless the United States of America so that we can be a blessing to others. That's the biblical witness. When Abram was, uh, was told by God, I will bless you so that you can be a blessing to others. But the biblical witness is also full of examples where God's blessing doesn't mean living on easy street. Was there ever one more blessed by God than Jesus, God's son? But remember Jesus' words in both Matthew and Luke, foxes have holes, the birds of the air have nests, but the son of man has nowhere to lay his head. Blessed as he was, Jesus' life and ministry were filled with hardship struggle, and pain. No, very often God's blessings mean challenges, hardships, sacrifice, something that I really know very little about in my privileged status. But that may be our calling, our burden. I hope and pray that you and I are human enough. You know, we were created to be human. And most of the time, much of the time, at least some of the time, we're less than human. I hope that we're human enough that we understand that the welfare of others, their well-being affects all of us. For God's plans are for our welfare, as well as the welfare of others. And because of that, we have a future and a hope. Thanks be to God. Amen.